Let's just bow for a word of prayer. Love indeed has a, a name. Father, we praise you that we don't have to wander around. We don't have to look to the novels. We don't have to look to the television set or the, the movie theater to find out what true love looks like. For true love has taken on flesh. True love has dwelt among us. True love is Jesus our Lord. And we, Father, Father, we gather here as a people who've been touched, who've been impacted by true love. Father, I just pray that in these moments as we gather, as we, as we share here today, Lord, that you direct our thoughts, our attitudes to the God who has shown us true love. The God who is gracious and merciful. The God who is abounding in loving kindness. God, we gather and we worship you as the God over all who has granted to us a love that is worthy of our attention, worthy of our very lives. And so, Father, help us to cast out any distractions that would keep us from being focused on you, directed by your word, living in accordance with your love as we gather on this day, Lord. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 12 will be the focus of our attention today. If you have a Bible with you, I hope you do, find your way to Luke chapter 12. And I am going to share with you a message that I've titled, The Division That Causes Us to Multiply. We'll be picking up in Luke chapter 12, verse 49. And this past week, as many of you know, my, my father has been having some medical issues. He started out with a surgery to remove some kidney stones. Um, for those of you who have not yet heard, he's back in the emergency room today. And um, they're still trying to get things patched up. So appreciate your prayers for him um, as he continues to just seek the Lord's will and, and seek healing from those the Lord has blessed with skill and talent to, to tend to his needs. But as we were going in this past week, as my dad went in for surgery on Friday, I accompanied him as we went back to the pre-op area. And as they were there, they're waiting to remove these large kidney stones that have been plaguing him for a good bit of time. And, and as we're there in the, in the pre-op area, there were various individuals that kept kind of popping through the curtain there. You know, there were nurses that were coming in to collect the information that they needed to draw little samples of blood to do this and that. There was a uh, anesthesiologist who came through to explain a little bit about the process that he would be carrying out and in basically giving dad a good nap. Uh, there was also the uh, doctor, the, the urologist who came in to do his part for the day. But, but as, as, the, as the urologist, as the surgeon for the day came in, he did something that really kind of caught my attention in that he made sure to put a mark on my dad's back in the place where this surgery was going to be taking place. Now, this was my dad's own doctor, and this same doctor had performed another procedure the day before to basically put a line in at the place where this procedure was going to be taking place. And so he knew where the work was going to be done. I mean, it was obvious from the line kind of running out of my dad's back, but still, he asked my dad, now, Mr. Parker, we're here to perform surgery on your left kidney. Is that right? And my dad said something, yeah, like we're going to have surgery right there where that line's coming out. Can, can you not see that thing, right? But, you know, the doctor knew that. He, he knew why he had come. He knew the work that he was going to do on this day. 
But some good procedures had apparently been put in, in place for this hospital, which required the doctor to ask that question and to make that mark at that particular place where the surgery would be conducted that would then be seen by all those who were gathered in the operating room as a confirmation that we're here to do this work. We're here to do the thing which is on the agenda for today. And this is a good practice because it turns out that many times surgeons actually forget the reason why they have come. In fact, the Joint Commission, which is an organization that accredits over 21,000 U.S. healthcare organizations and programs, identified from the year 2017 a total of 95 surgeries that were carried out in the span of that year, which, in which the surgery was either conducted, one, on the wrong patient, or two, on the wrong side of that patient, or thirdly, the wrong procedure was carried out. 95 times in the United States that happened in the year 2017. The Patient Safety Network summarizes the impact of these surgeries that were carried out in such a way with these words. Few medical errors are as vivid and terrifying as those that involve patients who have undergone surgery on the wrong body part, undergone the incorrect procedure, or had a procedure intended for another patient. And they excite examples of this sort of scenario there on their website. There I read that it's apparently surprisingly common for neurosurgeons to operate on the wrong level of the spine. We can imagine how you might get crossed up in that sort of thing. Then there was one specific case in which a patient underwent a heart procedure that was actually intended for another patient with the same or at least a similar sort of last name. And yes, just earlier this month, a trial was held to evaluate the culpability of two Vanderbilt University Medical Center doctors who mistakenly implanted a medical device in the wrong kidney of a patient back in 2017. Tragically, that patient died two months later. So it's good for a doctor to be clear on the reason why he is coming or she is coming. When Jesus came to earth, he came with a clear purpose. That purpose is sprinkled throughout the first four books of the New Testament that we know as the Gospels. These are the books which ultimately reveal for us the good news of Christ. They reveal ultimately what he did here during his time on earth. They recount how he walked among us, how he lived here, how he performed his miracles, how he came to exact salvation. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, we get a glimpse of Jesus' purpose when he said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Also in John chapter 10, Jesus contrasts his work with the, with the work of the thief who has come to steal and to kill and destroy by saying these words. He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I mean, Jesus was clear. He's laying down his marks. This is why I have come. This is the work that I have come to do. And in Luke's gospel, we find some clear statements about Jesus' purpose as well. We've seen a little bit of that as we've been journeying through the book of Luke. And back in Luke chapter 5, for example, we encountered Jesus' words to the Pharisees that it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He said in Luke chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. Later, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we'll see that Jesus also said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is describing in all of these instances the reasons why he has come, his mission, his objective, what he is set about to do as he's conducting his business like a surgeon making a mark on his patient as a reminder of where he's going to be going, what he's going to be doing. And these passages help us to know why Jesus has come. But in today's passage, we're going to encounter one of those statements from Jesus about why he has come that might catch us a little bit off guard. Look at the passage with me now as we open God's Word to Luke chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 49 to 59. If you're able, I'd ask that you just stand that we might honor the reading of God's Word. Luke 12, starting verse 49, Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearing of the earth and the sky Why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you were going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last sent here ends the reading of God's word you may be seated for many of us when we when we think of Jesus we think of peace we refer to Jesus as the prince of peace as a matter of fact and that's because that's who he is he is the prince of peace in fact the old testament prophesied that this one who would come the messiah would be called wonderful counselor Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's what we read in Isaiah 9, 6. But before Jesus went to the cross, he told his disciples in chapter 14 of John's gospel, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And so we know that Jesus is ultimately ushered in a new era of peace for those who know him as savior 
For those who have believed on the Lord Jesus have ultimately found peace with God. As Paul wrote, wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, that is declared right in God's standing, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, there's so much in the Bible that talks about the peace ultimately for the believer that Jesus has brought. But you should know that when it comes to this world that we live in, when it comes to this place where we currently hang our hat, when it comes to this broader ecosystem around us in its current state, Jesus' purpose in coming was not to usher in peace and harmony in the world as it is. There was an important lesson. This was an important lesson that the Jews needed to hear because ultimately they were looking forward to a Messiah who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. They were expecting that this Messiah, when he came, would ultimately, in his first coming, usher in a kingdom which would free them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. So it was an important lesson for them to know that Jesus didn't come to bring that sort of peace in that sort of moment. But this is also an important lesson for us to remember as well. As we Christians function in a world that calls for us to compromise our convictions, think of the areas of marriage and sexuality or the areas of of living out an identity of faith that are so challenged in the culture around us where the world wants us just to get on board, to, to smooth off the rough edges, and to just... Be happy, nice, peaceful individuals. But friends, we can't compromise what God's called us to live out. We cannot create a God of our own yearning just for the sake of some false sense of peace. And Jesus wants us to know. Ultimately, that's not what he's come to usher in. Jesus speaks to why he has come in this passage we just read. And he says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth in verse 49. That doesn't sound too peaceful to me. I don't know about to you. Then in verse 51, he makes this explicit saying, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. Jesus came to produce division. That may not be what tends to come to mind when you think about Jesus, but it's clear from his own words stating his mission, what he's come to do here in this passage today. And through these words, Jesus marks what he intends to do through his coming. Like a surgeon preparing for surgery, Jesus makes it clear that he's about to bring division on the earth, which he will also cast fire upon. And these words about Jesus' mission deserve our attention because Jesus brings a division that ultimately separates all of humanity into one of two categories. Now that Jesus has come, you must know that Jesus is the great divider of all of mankind. And because he has come, every one of us is divided into one of two categories. There are the redeemed and there are the lost. There are the saved And there are the unsaved. There are some differences which we simply cannot set aside when it comes to these two groups. Because when it comes to Jesus, 
we must recognize that his coming calls for a decision. And that decision divides us into two camps. In fact, I want to share with you from this passage three ways that mankind is divided over Jesus. The first is this. We're divided over who receives our fire. We're divided over who receives our fire. When Jesus speaks of his purpose of casting fire upon the earth in his coming, I'm convinced that what he's talking about here is a fire of judgment. Now, there are other types of fires that we see in the New Testament. Some scholars would say that you look to the early church at the time of Pentecost when the flaming tongues of fire set upon the church. But if you look at the broader context of what Jesus is talking about in this sermon that he's been preaching since the beginning of Luke chapter 12, there had been this recurring theme of judgment in what he's talking about. And furthermore, that is a recurring theme throughout Scripture. Fire is often used to describe God's coming judgment. For example, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day is, that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Likewise, we read in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 15 and 16, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. Now we may not like the idea of the Lord's judgment whereby he exacts justice on those who have sinned against him. But Jesus has been all over this topic in the sermon that we've been studying for the last several weeks here in Luke chapter 12. Back in verses 4 and 5 for example. He called for us to fear him rather than those who can only kill us because not only can he kill us, he has the authority to cast those he kills into hell. Then in verses 8 through 10, he calls for us to confess him before men lest they deny us, lest he deny us before the angels of heaven. And in verses 20 and 21, he compels us to avoid greed and to be rich toward God. Why? Because God could require our souls at any moment in this time of judgment. And just before today's passage, Jesus spoke about his return, how we ought to be ready for his return. He called for us to be ready to meet him at any moment in this meeting where ultimately we will be held accountable. So this theme of accountability, this theme of judgment is already strong in what Jesus is preaching here in Luke chapter 12. But Jesus wants us to understand. Each of us deserves the fire of God's wrath. And he, as the Son of God, is the appointed representative who will bring this fiery judgment to pass. Jesus is that great judge who will bring fire upon the earth. But before a fire can be cast on the earth, it must be kindled. That's what Jesus speaks of in the latter half of verse 49. And when he does, he says, How I wish that this fire were already kindled. That is, before God's judgment is exacted on all of humanity, it must be lit. 
It must be exacted in some smaller form. It must be kindled in a sort of way. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus makes that clearer in verse 50 where he says, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. What was the baptism that Jesus had to undergo? What was the fire which was already kindled? The way that he wished was already kindled. What distressed Jesus until it was accomplished? Jesus is talking about his own sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary. Again, judgment through fire is a sign of God's wrath and God's fury poured out against sin. But on the cross, my friends, Jesus kindled the fire. Jesus bore the wrath. It was on the cross that Jesus bore the wrath against sinners as the sinless one who died in our place. Because it was on the cross where Jesus ultimately was the one who took what was rightfully ours. He took the curse that we deserved. He took the penalty which was rightfully ours and he bore it upon himself. This fire, this judgment which is coming, Jesus ultimately bore that in this kindling of the fire, in the baptism that was his own death and burial. And the Bible reveals that through Jesus' death and burial, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21. When God kindled his fire of judgment, he kindled it on his only sinless son. His one and only son. So that those who receive him as Savior and Lord might have a substitute who has already borne the fire that they deserve. And friends, we're divided over who receives our fire. All of mankind is divided on this. Hear me here. Some of us are headed for the fire while others of us have had our fire cast on Jesus. Jesus came to save. He came to bear our judgment. The fire was kindled on him so that we don't have to face the fire of God's judgment on our own. But if we desire to escape that fire, we must come to God on his own terms. We must come to him by faith, entrusting our lives unto Jesus as Savior and Lord. And friends, you should know that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of the God. That's what Romans 3.23 tells us. And, And furthermore, the wages of sin is death. Because we violated God's design, because we've, through our actions and our inactions, missed what he created us to do, violated what he's commanded us to do, both in word and thought and deed. Because of this, we've set ourselves at enmity with a holy God. And yet Jesus has offered to us a lifeline. Jesus has offered to us a rescue. Jesus has come to save. He faced the judgment that you deserve as the father turned his back on his son and caused the iniquity of us all to fall on his shoulders. By his wounds, you can be healed. But you must come to him on his terms. And so I ask you, who's going to receive your fire? Will you face God's 
judgment and his wrath and his fury for the things that you've done or left undone in disobedience to his design and his will? Or has Jesus already faced your fire for you? Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Bible makes that so clear. By grace, through faith, he offers to save you. All you must do is believe on the Lord Jesus. Yield your eternity into his hands. And he will save you. But not everyone will trust Jesus to bear their fire. And so this necessarily produces a division. In fact, verses 52 and 53 have Jesus showing us how this decision many times creates division even within immediate families. That's where he says, from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And I don't know how it is for all of you, but for some individuals, coming to Jesus can create a great division. For some individuals, becoming a Christian means being disowned from the family or being disowned, disinvited from all of its functions as a result of following Christ. And even if following Christ doesn't create that sort of division for you, you may still find tension in the relationships that you share with those that you love. When you come to Jesus, your friends or your family may misunderstand you as you start living for Christ. They may wonder why you can no longer go to the places where you used to go or do the things that you used to do in their company. As you're striving to live according to God's word. Some individuals may accuse you of thinking that you're too good for them. Others may soil up or shirk away with the expectation that you're going to start talking about Jesus again and how he's impacted your life. And I really just don't want to hear that. I know you're trying to win me to Christ, but I don't want to hear that mess. Some of you experience that. And if you're considering coming to Christ, let all of that be a part of the consideration because he produces division. And some of you will be divided from your spouses others will be divided from your children others from your parents and you've got to evaluate am i ready for that but let me say this jesus is worthy of any relationship that may become frayed as you come to him Jesus had this to say to his disciples in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. And his grace is sufficient enough to win any wandering sinner. And so if you're kind of evaluating that equation, if you're thinking about, oh, man, if I come to Christ, I'm really going to put myself at enmity with Uncle Joe or with my husband or, or, or with my extended family members or with that coworker. Remember that God is faithful. God is capable. God can win any lost and wandering sinner to himself. So don't presume that you know where this division will happen. But ultimately, I say, let the chips fall where they may. If coming to Christ means that I lose the attachments I have here on this earth, he is so much more worthy 
that I will gladly leave them behind. And I hope that's your attitude as you consider this idea of division that Jesus brings even within our own families. And yet this is a division which ought to compel us to go. That this is a division that ought to compel us to go to others with the good news of who Jesus is. A division which ultimately says, I don't want to lose my family members. I want to take the gospel to them. I want to multiply God's glory on the earth. Because of this division, I want to multiply. I want to bring other followers. I want to cause them to break this great chasm, to come not where the lost and the sinners and the unredeemed are, but to come to the side of the redeemed, to come to those who know Christ, come to those who have an eternal hope. Because that's what this division ought to compel us to do. It's a division that ought to compel us to multiply God's glory on the earth. So let us multiply magnifiers of his name. Let us multiply models of his character. Let us multiply members of his family. Let us multiply ministers of his grace. Let us multiply messengers of his love. Let us make Jesus known among our family members, among our co-workers, among our communities, and let us draw them back across this great divide. Because God is faithful, and His gospel is for whosoever will. An unbelieving salesman at a large soap company and his brother, who was a Christian, they were walking down together one country, old country road one day, When the soap salesman said to his brother, you know, the gospel you keep telling me about, it really hasn't done much good, has it? If you could peel back the walls on any of these country farmhouses, you'd see the same sort of thing we both see in the news every day. There's a lot of wickedness. There's a lot of wicked people in this world. The believing brother bit his lip for a few minutes until the lecture was over. And then eventually the two of them passed a couple of kids making mud pies down in the ditch. When he saw that, the believing brother said, it looks like that soap you sell hasn't done much good for the world either. There's still a lot of dirt, still a lot of dirty kids in the world. Well, the brother who made his living off of the soap said, oh, well, soap is only useful when it's applied. To this, his brother said, that's true for the gospel as well. The gospel is only useful when it's applied. Our friends and our family need to know this good news. Let this division of Christ compel you to multiply his glory on the earth, my friends. Because we're divided over who receives our fire. That's the first way mankind is divided. Here's the second. We're divided over how we analyze the present time. In verse 54, we see that Jesus speaks to the crowds and speaks about how they're all amateur meteorologists, just like the rest of us. That is, they see a cloud rising in the west. That's where the Mediterranean Sea was located and where a lot of the rainfall for that area would come from. And so they would say immediately, a shower is coming. Or they would see a south wind blowing, knowing that the desert was the source of that south wind. So they would say it's going to be a hot day. And that would prove to be true. I don't know about all of you, but I check the weather each day before I head out to make sure that I'm ready for all that the day holds. And oh, just think about if a hurricane or a tropical storm or a, or a snowstorm is on the horizon, how much coverage we get about that sort of thing because we're all interested in knowing. How can I be prepared for the storm? 
How can I be ready if this thing comes? What kind of damage is it going to do? Am I going to have to make changes to my, to my plans for my week? And we want to know if there's a storm coming, how we can be ready for that storm. We want to know how much it's going to impact our lives. We want to be prepared for the storm. But here's a question for you. Are you evaluating the forecast of your own eternity? That's what Jesus is drawing us to consider here. Are you ready for the storm of fire that Jesus said he has come to cast upon the earth? The signs are all there. God can give you no greater evidence than what he's already given you in raising his own son from the dead as a confirmation that this was his appointed representative through whom you might be saved. God's given you all the signs. The clouds are there, okay? You can feel the south wind blowing. The question is, what are you doing with that information? You've got all the indicators you'll ever need. But what are you going to do with the truth about Jesus? The crowds that Jesus were preaching to were ultimately taking a bit of a wait-and-see sort of approach here. They had all the signs they needed. Right in their midst, Jesus was healing the sick. He was driving out demons. He even raised the dead in their midst. And yet they were unwilling to believe in him. And so he says in verse 56, You hypocrites! You know how to analyze the appearing of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? And the reality is that some of us are only concerned about the weather that's coming, while others of us have prepared for the judgment that is coming. That's the division that Jesus is drawing out here in these verses. What are the clouds coming that we should see when it comes to this spiritual analogy that Jesus is drawing? What should cause us to flee for safety from the coming storm? Well, as we've already explored, God promised judgment in these verses immediately preceding. And none of us knows when our pulse may stop and usher us into that very time of judgment ourselves. As we saw last week, we're living in an era of God's patient grace we're living in a time when through his patience god is delaying his judgment in order that others might come to know christ in order that others might be saved god is patiently waiting we have good weather now so we can prepare for the coming storm but that good weather will not endure forever so jesus compels us to see the signs hear his words now is the appointed time today is the day of salvation but we're divided over how we analyze the present time. My hope is that this division will, will cause you and compel you to analyze the present time and to multiply God's glory on the earth by yielding your own life, your own heart, your own soul into his control, submitting all of your days, no matter what the weather may be in them, over to his will. Today, not tomorrow, not a few weeks or a few years from now. Today, give your heart to Jesus today. Trust in Jesus today. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved today. I believe one of the best tools that Satan has on his belt to keep you from Christ is found when he convinces you to put off this most important decision until tomorrow. He deceives some, surely, to believe that God doesn't exist, but not many of us fall for that because all of nature cries out. Our very conscience within us cries out that God exists. 
Others buy into Satan's lie that there's no hell or no coming judgment. But most of us, even when we're encountered with the severest of the severe evil, we think about a Hitler, for example. We want to see judgment. There's something within us that calls certain things wrong, unjust. There's something within us that says this is morally wrong. God's placed this template within us that shows that unrighteousness deserves to be punished. And so there's something even within us there which would expect moral justice to be exacted, expect some accountability. But it seems as though Satan's greatest tool might be to convince individuals that they can put off their decision about how they should prepare for this coming storm until a later time. If Satan can just keep you from making the decision to pursue Christ at the moment the gospel is warming your heart, he will find success in keeping you on the wrong side of the greatest divide in history. So the question for you is this, are you going to act on the evidence that you've received or are you going to remain in a situation of indecision until it's too late? And we're divided over how we analyze the present time. That's the second way the mankind is divided over Jesus. Here's the final way. We're divided over when we'll satisfy our divine debts. In verses 57 to 59, Jesus uses a courtroom analogy to drive home the importance of settling your affairs with God here and now. In this hypothetical sort of situation, he presents this situation in which an individual has a great debt, and he's going before the magistrate in order to handle this debt. But ultimately, the individual knows that he is guilty of this debt. He knows that he's done something very wrong. And the implication is that if this individual appears before the judge, the judge is going to hand this individual over to the officer. And the officer will then cast that one into the debtor's prison where he will remain until he has paid every last cent of what he owes. The judge is about to drop the hammer. This, this one is expecting to be locked away. He, he is under the impression that he is about to lose his freedom. Just imagine being in those shoes. Imagine that you're in a spy, space where ultimately your guilt is about to overwhelm you and to cast you into a sentence which ultimately you will not find release from. Now again, Jesus is speaking in terms of the coming time when he will judge the world. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 reveals, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. But my friends, here's the good news. God, through Christ, has extended to us a plea deal. Jesus says the one who knows he's going to stand before the judge and be thrown into the prison should, while he's on the way, make amends with his opponent. And God has met us with his terms to say, look, I'm willing to pay that penalty for you. I'm willing to set you free. Not by anything that you've done, but because I've borne the penalty myself. Before you get to the judge, let's work this deal out. Find your peace. Find your freedom. Find release from what you know is coming your way. Because Jesus has paid the debt that we owed himself. You see, God the judge took on flesh himself to bear our penalty, to be acquainted with our griefs, to set us free. 
But we must settle our affairs before we come to him in judgment. We must meet God on his own terms and plead for his mercy and grace to meet our need. Why? Because some of us are headed for inescapable judgment while others have settled up in advance. That same great divide. Jesus, the one who has come to divide, divides in this way. And once again, this division ought to compel us to multiply our days of freedom. If you're apart from Christ, sure, you might experience a little liberty now. You might really enjoy the freedom that you have. Not striving to live under God's will. But that is a finite freedom. Jesus makes it clear that a day of judgment is coming. And he offers to you the opportunity to extend that freedom forevermore. By yielding your life to him. By yielding your life to the Savior who suffered and bled and died in our stead. We owe an infinite debt against an infinite God. And some of you might look at a, at a verse like we find here in verse 59 and say, well, you know what? I'll just pay the last cent. I, I mean, I'll go and I'll face my time in judgment and then I'll be freed from that and, and then God will release me for all of eternity. Friends, you owe an infinite debt. Your debt is against an infinite God. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells this account of a rich man and a guy named Lazarus who both died the rich man being oppressive to others during his lifetime ended up in a place called Hades. Whereas Lazarus ended up in Abraham's bosom. They were kind of the representations of heaven and hell at that time. And the, and the rich man was in anguish. He was just desiring that Lazarus would dip his finger in the water and come and bring it to him that he might find some relief. But Abraham told this rich man that Lazarus could not do that because there was a great chasm between us. Between you and me, there is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Friends, hell is a permanent destination. If you don't settle up and cross the great divide now, you'll face the judge and you will have no opportunity to do the same on the other side of that judgment. I heard about a training session for soldiers, paratroopers who were about to make their first parachute jump and the sergeant explained how to open the reserve chute. And a private was kind of nervous about that idea. Well, like, you know, if my first chute fails and I have to pull my second chute, he, he said, sergeant, if that chute doesn't open, how long do I have to pull my reserve chute? The sergeant looked directly into the private's eyes and he replied earnestly, the rest of your life, soldier, the rest of of your life Jesus has come to bring division and you only have the rest of your life which duration you do not know to decide which side of this great division you will be on and so I call you now just to evaluate which side of the division are you headed for which side of the great division do you desire to be on are those things aligned with one another? If not, today is the day of salvation. Don't let another moment, another blink of an eye pass by without entrusting your life to Christ as Savior and Lord and King. Don't let the fire fall upon yourself. Jesus has come to bear that fire, my friends. And so I just ask you to, to, to bow your heads and close your eyes in a moment of contemplation to think about this fire to think about this division to think about your own stance in the midst of that where do you stand are you ready to meet him in judgment
Has Jesus already borne the fire that you deserve? Have you come to him by grace, through faith, trusting in Jesus is the only way that you will ever be saved? My friends, I want you to know, Jesus has come for this purpose. Though he creates a great division, he does provide peace as well for those who cling to him by faith. And so I just urge you, if you're in the midst of that situation, if that's a prayer that you want to make, that you would just cry out to God and say, Lord, here I am, a sinner, one who deserves your wrath, one who deserves your judgment, but I pray that you would save me. Save me, Lord Jesus. Give me new life. Give me new hope. Give me a new purpose. Give me an eternity that is free. Save me from my wanderings. I commit my life to you, O Lord. I entrust my eternal destiny to you. Where you guide me, I want to follow. Where you lead me, I want to pursue you. And I just want to tell you on the authority of God's word that he will save you. If that's your prayer to him, if you're praying this prayer, even in this moment, God is faithful. And his salvation is for whosoever will. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus.